You're listening to the Futures Podcast with me, Luke Robert Mason. On this episode, I speak to neuroscientist Anil Seth. The experience of being a self is probably the most important aspect of any of our conscious experiences. And this is not a single thing either. There are very many ways in which we experience being who we are. Anil shared his thoughts on the role of neuroscience in explaining human consciousness, why our perception of reality might be a controlled hallucination, and how psychedelics are challenging our understanding of the mind. So your new book focuses on a brain-based physicalist understanding of this thing called consciousness. So with that in mind, what do you think is our best explanation for what consciousness is? We don't have a best explanation yet, I think, for what consciousness (laughs) is. That's one of these very metaphysical questions that tries to figure out what the place of consciousness is in the universe. I take much more of a pragmatic view on this. Consciousness exists. We each know what it is to have conscious experiences. And consciousness is what you lose when you go under general anesthesia and what comes back when you come around again. And when we are conscious, we have specific conscious experiences. They're experiences of the world around us and of being a self, of of being me or being you uh, within it. And when thinking about this grand mystery of how we understand the place of consciousness in the universe. I think there are two broad options. You can try and face the problem head on and say, what is it about matter that generates conscious experience? Or maybe consciousness is somehow fundamental and ubiquitous to the universe. These are very grand statements. Or you can be a little bit more, I think, humble and pragmatic about it and say, okay, we know that conscious experience is in humans and other animals depend in very intimate ways Mm. on the brain and the body. And the more we can explain the character of conscious experiences in terms of processes in the brain and the body, then we're making progress in the science of consciousness. And it may not be necessary in the end to explain the big why and how consciousness is part of the universe in the first place. Well, I was going to ask, if the question isn't what, then should the question really be why? I mean, why does consciousness itself just happen or, I guess in some cases, emerge? Right. So there's this philosophical position of what's often called epiphenomenalism. And Uh this is the idea that consciousness really doesn't have a function. It's just somehow comes along for the ride, like the whistle of a steam engine is the old classic example of this. And there's also this very well-known thought experiment in philosophy of a philosophical zombie. This could be Mm. a person like you or me who from the outside is completely indistinguishable from a normal you or me, but has no consciousness. There is no conscious experience going on. And this Mm. is that the plausibility of something like a philosophical zombie is taken as one of the arguments against uh, physicalism. I think it's a very weak argument. We might get into that. But why is consciousness present? What, what good is it? I think there are very many reasons why mm. we have consciousness. If you think about what consciousness does for us in practice, forget about in principle for a moment, but in practice, what a conscious experience is good for? Well, they bring together a large amount of information in a unified scene that emphasizes the opportunities for action that are relevant to our survival. 
Mm. You know, we see things in ways that help us interact with them, that help us stay alive. We experience ourselves and our bodies in terms of emotions and moods, whether things are going well or badly, whether we should run away from something or, or run towards it. The number of possible situations that an organism like a human being could be in is just absolutely vast. And the number of ways we could respond to any particular situation is also absolutely enormous. And if you multiply that over time, what could we do now? What could we do in a few seconds from now, in a few minutes, in a few months? Mm -hmm. You get into these enormous possibility spaces. And it seems to me that conscious experiences are a very effective and efficient way of compressing a lot of organism-relevant information in a unified, almost goal-directed or at least survival-related format. That's what I think consciousness is ultimately for. It's to help us stay alive better. Do you really believe then that there is an evolutionary basis for consciousness? Is that self-preservation urge, if if nothing else, that the idea that we perceive ourselves as conscious means that we suddenly have a reason to keep ourselves alive? I think that's part of it, yes. Mm. I do think there's an evolutionary history, and this is almost an article of, of faith, I would have to say. It's very little evidence because consciousness doesn't leave a fossil record, yep. but... Almost everything in biology can only be understood through the light of evolution, at least to some extent. And consciousness is such a central feature of certainly human existence, and I would say the existence of many other animals, that it seems incredibly unlikely that it has no evolutionary past, evolutionary history, that it wasn't shaped by selection pressure. I think it absolutely was, and especially when you do think about what conscious experiences offer us, mm. they're clearly very adaptive things. They're clearly very useful for the organism in all sorts of ways. Your latest book, what it really looks at is the relationship between consciousness and the self. So what is that relationship and why is that so important for understanding both ourselves and each other, I guess? When we think about the nature of conscious experiences, there are two key aspects to it. I think there's the experience of the world around us. And a lot of the science of consciousness has very reasonably focused on that. How do visual experiences come about? What's the difference between conscious and unconscious visual perception? But there's also the experience of being a self. It's a bit harder to study because we can't manipulate these experiences in the same way that I can, for instance, manipulate visual perception in the laboratory. But when it comes down to it, the experience of being a self is probably the most important aspect of any of our conscious experiences. And this is not a single thing either. There are very many ways in which we experience being who we are. There's the experience of being identified with a body, having a body. Mm. The experience of how well the body is doing at staying alive. Back to that old thing again. And then there are higher levels of selfhood that come to be associated with a name and a set of memories. And also things like free will and agency. All of these are parts of being a self. I think the first critical thing to recognize here, and certainly this is not a new idea in my book, it's been around for a long time, is that the self is not the thing that does the perceiving. The self is not like an essence of conscious observation, an essence of subjectivity that's perched somewhere inside the skull. The self is a perception too. The self is something that arises in the ongoing flow of conscious experience. And when you put it like that, then 
it becomes necessary to account for why and how we experience selfhood the way we do. What do the mechanisms underlying experiences of self have in common with those that underlie our experiences of the world? And then ultimately, I think it's important because what are the reasons we're interested in consciousness in the first place? It is a grand scientific mystery, but there's also a very personal aspect to it. I think certainly in my case, and I think for many others, we all want to understand ourselves better and how we fit into the wider tapestry of society and of nature. I mean, you playfully suggest that being you is a controlled hallucination. I mean, what do you mean by that when you say that being me is just a hallucination? It's true. It is playful. I'm glad you called it that. It don't, I don't mean it completely <laughs> yeah. literally. It's very, very difficult to find the right words yep. to describe these sorts of things. Why do I use this term? By the way, it wasn't my invention. Again, I, I heard this term mm. from Chris Frith in, in London. He heard it from someone else, someone else. It's got a long history. The central idea of using that phrase is that perception, whether it's of the self or of the world, is always an active construction. It's not just a passive readout, a transparent readout of what's already there. Whether it's the perception of a blue sky or a red coffee cup or of an emotion that might arise in my experience or a memory that I might have from earlier in the day. All of these obey certain common principles that they are all, in my view, forms of perception and all of perception is as much as a writing as it is a reading. So the idea is the brain is always throwing out predictions about what's going on, whether in the body or the world, and it's using sensory data to update and calibrate those predictions. The content of what we perceive is conveyed not by the sensory input, but by these top-down, inside-out perceptual predictions. So there is here a continuity with what we typically think of as hallucination. Like hallucination, we typically think of as a perception, a false perception. You perceive something that other people don't, but it's still coming from the inside out. But for a hallucination, it's no longer controlled by the body or the world. It's kind of uncontrolled perception. Whereas normal perception, it's still coming from the inside out, but it is now absolutely controlled. It's geared to what's out there in the body and the world. So that's why I think it's a useful term. It certainly does not mean that the brain makes up reality or that any perception is equally valid. No, the control is absolutely critical. Well, it's not just control, is it? Because it's it's how it's informed, if anything else, because perception certainly feels like, in a very subjective way, it feels like it's an assemblage of a multitude of things. Yes, the the data input from our sense organs, that's one of those things. But equally, language, the way in which we then translate that, whether we're talking to ourselves in some form to help us understand these sensory inputs. And then equally, memory plays a part in that. The way in which we've had previous relationships with the thing that we're sensing, whether it's the perception of red, a memory of red, all of these things contribute to this conscious perception. So is the brain, is it sort of organizing this stuff into some form of hierarchy to give us conscious experience? Or are we at the stage of scientific understanding where we just don't know the interrelationship between language, the senses, and this equally mysterious thing called memory? 
Right. That's the business of neuroscience, basically. Yeah. I think that's mm. the day job of what needs to be done. And the views on this have spanned from one extreme to the other, you know, from <laughs> extreme views that everything in the brain is distributed. There's no particular organization into different functions. And then the other extreme that everything is completely modular and that you have one bit of the brain that does language, one bit of the brain that does perception, one bit of the brain that does memory and so on. And of course, the, the truth is going to be somewhere in the middle that mm. everything that the brain is capable of doing, whether it's language or perception or action, is going to take a network. It's going to be a distributed across many different brain regions, probably in some loosely hierarchical form, although the amount of hierarchy is going to depend on what the specific function is. Something like mm. vision might be more hierarchical than something like smell, for instance, because the visual world is naturally more hierarchical in its organization. And then not every part of the brain is going to contribute to conscious perception either. Yeah. A lot of what the brain does may be just necessary for us to be conscious organisms, but it may not shape the particular contents of what we perceive at any one time. And I think this is the beauty of taking a pragmatic neuroscientific perspective on it, because these are all addressable questions. It's not easy, but we can basically go in and do experiments to try and figure out okay, which bits of the brain or which processes or interactions in the brain contribute to our conscious experiences and which don't? And what's the best way to understand its overall organization? What kind of network? Is it like the World Wide Web? Is it like a, a very strict hierarchical network? What innovations can we use from areas like machine learning and AI to think about the relationship between artificial neural networks and brain organization? So it's a very exciting field to be in because the tools that we have are, are getting better all the time. You are largely agnostic about where consciousness comes from, but you do lean towards this idea of taking a physicalist approach to consciousness. In other words, that it emerges from matter. So could you help explain to our audience what is that physicalist approach and how does it differ from some of the other theories and approaches to this thing called consciousness? Right. So physicalism or materialism, I use the two relatively synonymously, is the view that there is a physical world out there. <laughs> it's made of stuff. We may not know exactly what that stuff is, whether it's super strings or quarks or, or whatever, yeah. but matter of some sort exists. And then other things that we observe in the universe are properties of that matter organized in some way or other. You know, life, we are quite comfortable with life being a property of matter organized in particular ways. And so physicalism applied to consciousness is that consciousness too is a property of the physical universe, physical matter, organized in some way. Mm. It's a very liberal perspective, really. It's not making any specific claim about this level of matter is important or this particular kind of interaction is important, but just that this is a a useful picture. It's always been a very useful picture in, in science in general to understand complex phenomena in terms of interactions in matter. There are some other perspectives though, and these come about because 
of the apparent mystery of how you could ever really explain consciousness this way. So this goes right back to Descartes, probably further back, certainly further back to the Greeks and so on, that conscious experiences, because they are intrinsically subjective and private, to us now just don't seem to be the kinds of things that could ever be explained this way. Yeah, There's this intuition that consciousness is not and cannot be any kind of property of physical material interactions. This motivated Descartes. It also motivates the so-called hard problem of David Chalmers, which is this idea that we all know that consciousness depends on physical processing in some way, but it's just rather unclear and mysterious how and why that should be so. And in the face of that mystery, you can do a number of things. You can either stick with the physicalist program, try and explain the various properties of consciousness in terms of material interactions in brains and bodies and and see whether this sense of mystery begins to dissolve and may eventually evaporate. And that's my bet. Mm. Or you can say, no, we need another perspective on how consciousness fits into our picture of the universe altogether. And here you have these other options such as idealism, which is that Actually, only conscious experiences exist. Hmm. And the problem isn't how you get mind from matter, it's how you get matter from mind. Or you can have panpsychism, which is the idea that consciousness is part of the fundamental structure of the universe. It's everywhere and it's ubiquitous and it has the same status of something like mass or energy or charge. So if you assume that, then there's no longer any hard problem to solve because you've built consciousness in from the bottom. Mm. But the problem with that for me is it really doesn't explain anything and it doesn't lead to any (laughs) testable predictions. So there's not much you can do with it. Yeah, And there's a whole variety of other interesting options on this menu of metaphysics. I think my favorite is Mysterianism. I mean, I say it's my favorite. I think it's my favorite in the sense of it's the weirdest, which is (laughs) the idea that there is a physicalist understanding of consciousness out there, but that we humans are just too unintelligent and it will always be too unintelligent to know what it is. We're cognitively closed to this solution that nonetheless does exist. You know, the wonderful thing about Mysterianism is if we were ever able to fully understand consciousness, would that confront us with the big question that our consciousness isn't that necessarily complex? If our human brains can understand it, then surely our human brains aren't complex enough. There's that weird paradox there, isn't there? I don't think there is actually. I think it's already the case that our understanding of phenomena is not the Mm. property of any individual brain. It hasn't been that way for a long time. I think it was this guy, Athanasius Kirchner, Mm -hmm. in I think maybe the 17th century or maybe the 18th century. He was renowned for being the last person who knew everything. After him, it just became impossible for anybody to justifiably say they knew everything. The things we understand in science now, we use the the word we, I think, very literally to say that the scientific enterprise or the enterprise of science with philosophy, with humanities, just science and culture in general have reached an understanding that exceeds the capabilities of any individual. And certainly we individuals can understand a solution that exists. So there are people that understand quantum mechanics potentially. Maybe they don't. Maybe that's the one counterexample. But certainly we understand evolution. But the development of that theory 
although we associate it with an individual, with Darwin and sometimes also with Wallace, of course it was much more than just two individuals. So I don't think there is that paradox, actually. I think we might collectively reach an understanding of consciousness that will then make some sense to all of us. Equally, and here's another possible outcome that I do find a bit weird to think about, we may reach a, an understanding, an explanation of consciousness that is consistent with what science should do in the sense that it allows us to explain the properties of consciousness, predict their occurrence and control them through intervention. But we might not have any sort of intuitive sense of, oh yeah, that's right, it has to be that way. Mm. I think that's entirely possible. But that also wouldn't be that odd. Quantum mechanics, again, is extremely good at explaining, predicting and controlling phenomena. But no one has a good intuition about really what the hell is going on. And of course, we can ignore it in our daily lives because we're not generally dealing with quantum mechanical phenomena, but we are every day dealing with the fact that we are conscious. So if we have a, a scientific explanation that lacks that intuitive feel, we may find it dissatisfying, but that may just be an unfair criticism on what scientific explanations should be expected to provide us with. It certainly feels like physicalism does have a challenge that's captured by this word emergence. Because if we assume that consciousness arises from complex matter, then we have to ask the question of at what point did matter become complex enough for ping consciousness to suddenly appear in reality? It's the same thing with life. The environment or the environment of this earth created the ideal circumstances under which suddenly ping, life appears, it emerges. The same thing happens with consciousness. It's almost captured in the, I think it was Terence McKenna who said, uh, you know, give us one free miracle and we'll explain the rest. And, and that one free mir miracle is that emergent peace, the ping of consciousness into existence. I mean, how do we confront that? How do we deal with that? How do we, uh, I guess, tackle this thing called emergence? I think you've hit a very important nail on the head there mm. by bringing up this concept of emergence, because yes, colloquially, that's what a lot of people who take a physicalist perspective would say. They say they would say that consciousness emerges from physical interactions in some way. The question is how. There's a lot riding on this word emergence there as you <laughs> rightly highlight. Yeah. I would say two things about it. The first thing is almost as with life, there will have been some point where you put a dividing line in between things that are not living and things that are living. But it does become a little bit arbitrary where you put that line. And the same might well go for consciousness, that if we can think of consciousness as being along a dimension or along several dimensions, of course, there'll be things that are unambiguously unconscious, like a dead salmon. And there'll be things that are unambiguously conscious, like you or me. And we can imagine interpolating along that line. And there may be no good reason to say any one particular place is the bright line between conscious and unconscious. There may be. They all, there may also be a justifiable reason to say that. But I don't think looking for that bright line is necessarily the right thing to do. I think the more important thing to do, as you suggested, is get clear on what we mean by emergence. Yeah. And here there's emergence over time in the sense of things emerging over evolution or over development of a particular organism. But there's also emergence in the moment. 
And here, I think, is where the most interesting questions are to be asked. Because in physicalism, that's usually the sense that it's meant. Like you have all these neurons firing and synapses, doing whatever synapses do, connecting, unconnecting. (laughs) And conscious experiences somehow emerge out of that soup of electrochemical activity Mm. at a particular time. And then other times under anesthesia, doesn't happen. Yeah. So this is a different meaning of the word emergence. And again, there are some, there's a sort of spooky way to think of emergence, which is there's some higher level property at which new laws of physics come in or something that is in principle not explainable by what's happening at lower levels. You can think of this as strong emergence. Yeah. But then there's also a more scientifically legitimate form of emergence called weak emergence, which just tries to characterize how the whole of a complex system relates to its parts. So if you think about flocks of birds, where I live in Brighton, on a winter evening, you often get these amazing murmurations of starlings, these huge flocks of starlings that wheel around the ruins of the old West Pier. And then at a certain point, they settle down to roost for the night. And if you look at these wheeling flocks, the flock seems to have a life of its own. It seems to have an organization, an autonomy, a dynamics that exceeds the dynamics of just the sum of the individual birds. But of course, we know that really there are just the individual birds. There's nothing spooky going on here. It's just interactions between the birds playing out in an interesting way that makes the whole more than the sum of the parts. Mm. And one of the things indeed in in my research group we've been doing much more lately is trying to find a good mathematical way of understanding these systems. Because if we can characterize how a flock of birds appears to emerge from the individual birds, maybe we can use the same approach to try to understand when we are conscious, what kind of global brain state is emerging from the firings of individual neurons in a conscious state, but not in an unconscious state. And getting more precise about emergence in this sense, I think, will give us a lot more clarity on how that word is used in this kind of physicalist picture of consciousness in the universe. Well, hearing you say that makes me think that we shouldn't be talking about consciousness in the singular, but perhaps talk about consciousness is So in other words, maybe there's not just one form of conscious experience that deals with everything that becomes us. Maybe there's a multitude of consciousnesses, one that deals with this memory thing, one that deals with how we process senses from the outside physical world, and they all interact to create this singular or hallucination of at least a singular perception of this thing called reality. Would that be fair? Or do you think in actual fact, no, it's it's one integrated thing. It's all coming from one single point. The disappointing answer is, of course, that it depends. Uh, but it is, again, it's a very interesting question. There's an assumption among many that yeah. consciousness is necessarily unified. So let's just take... Yeah. I mean, there's there's one sense in which you're absolutely right, and I think it's less controversial, which is that there is more than one way of being conscious. Yep. And the sort of adult human example of consciousness is just one point in a much larger space of possible conscious minds, whether they're other humans or other species, maybe other artificial systems, who knows. But there are definitely many ways of being conscious. But it gets more interesting and more tricky 
when we think about the apparent unity of consciousness as it unfolds for every one of us. Is that mm. a necessary condition for consciousness for a conscious agent? There's been a lot of debate about this over the decades. Of course, experiments on so-called split brain patients really challenge this idea. This was an operation relatively, well, it was never common, but it was done not infrequently in 50s, 60s, 70s, maybe up to the 80s mm. for people who had very, very intractable epilepsy, their repeated epileptic seizures. One of the treatments when me medication failed would be to chop most of the brain in half, usually mm. not all the brain, but you just chop through this corpus callosum, which is this band of fibers that connects the two cortical hemispheres. And observations from people like Roger Sperry and Michael Gazzaniga and others, Joe Bogan, seem to suggest that after this operation, you now had two independent conscious agents, but only one of them typically would have access to language and would be able to tell you stuff. Mm. But they would respond to input. If you showed visual input to, to one hemisphere, it seemed to determine the behavior of that hemisphere independently from what was going on in the other. Now, this literature has been developing and it is unsurprisingly more complicated than that. <laughs> But it's still very much a live debate. Are there mm. in practice examples where the conscious unity of a human being is split? But even then, even if you take that on board and say, okay, let's accept that that can happen, then each remaining consciousness might still be integrated itself. It might have its own mm. unity. And there's a deeper philosophical question here, which has been a really discussed in super interesting detail by people like my colleague Tim Bain in, in Australia about the unity of consciousness. What do we mean by this? Is it just contingent for our own human experience or is it a more fundamental property of experience in general? Mm. One of the more popular but also controversial theories of consciousness that's out there, the integrated information theory, it builds us in from the bottom up. It says this is an axiom of consciousness, that it is integrated, mm. that it is unified. And then you have questions about, okay, what's the granularity of that unification? If my whole brain is supporting a unified conscious experience, does that mean that smaller parts of my brain cannot support independent conscious experiences? These questions are all difficult and at the moment probably intractable to answer with experiments. But I do think they're interesting to contemplate. When we think about consciousness, it's always worth challenging our intuitions about what's necessary for consciousness. What are the possible ways in which consciousness could be expressed and not taking how things seem for us as how they are? Is that partly the great problem with brain scans? Because the wonderful thing about a brain scan is you can provoke certain inputs into a human body and you can see parts of the brain light up and you can kind of cross correlate, oh, okay, this sensory input triggers this part of the brain. But in reality, we don't actually know the location of anything. We know where the bits light up, but we don't know the location of a singular memory, for example. I can't scan your brain and go, oh, there's the location of Anil's memory of eating his breakfast this morning located exactly in that part of the brain. I mean, brain scans are, are metaphorical in so many ways, aren't they? And how do they confuse our understanding? Understanding of what's really going on when we're looking at things like brain scans? 
Well, you're right. They're, they, oh, it's interesting to think whether they're metaphorical. Uh, they're certainly very, very indirect mm. and they can be, be misleading. Yeah. But they're also an amazing tool. Let's not course, undersell yeah. them. It's, it's one of the things that's really catalyzed a lot of neuroscience in general, but certainly our understanding of consciousness is this ability to look inside a living human brain yeah. while people are having experiences and, and reporting them. This is just a game changer. It was certainly a game changer in the 90s. But... The technology is is limited. It's yeah. limited in the sense that we don't have a good brain imaging technology that gives us the three things that we would like to have at the same time. These being spatial resolution, where things are happening, temporal resolution, when they are happening, and coverage. We want to be able to look at pretty much the whole brain at once. We can have different combinations of these things, but not all three of them together. And so that makes it difficult to, well, it makes it almost inevitable that our analyses based on brain imaging data are going to be oversimplified. I mean, that's really no surprise. The brain is incredibly complex as a physical system, 86 billion neurons, thousand times more connections. We're not going to be able to record and image the activity of every relevant part of the brain hmm. at one time. And so I think the challenge here is both to develop improved imaging technologies that allow us to get closer to this combination of seeing what, when, and where in the brain, but also analysis methods. So most brain imaging things, certainly when you see brain scans in the media, you usually just see like a little hot spot here. There's a yeah. red patch in your frontal cortex or in your, in your amygdala if you're afraid of something. And of course, what you're really seeing there is not a bunch of neurons firing and everything else quiet. You're seeing a very small percentage change in the oxygenation of blood flowing around that particular region, which is related to brain neural activity in complicated and still incompletely understood ways. And so this the temptation that we have to be overly localizationalist and say that this whole property of the organism relates to just activity in this one area because it shows a bit more blood flow. And that is definitely an oversimplification. And there's much more attention to thinking about networks in the brain how we measure things like information flow between different brain regions rather than just the activity of this region or that region. I guess what I'm pushing towards is, is consciousness like a property or is it closer to something like uh, gravity? Is it some form of uh, field? I think we're again in danger of trying to address the question of what consciousness actually is. <laughs> is it a field? Is it a property of a small bundle of neurons or a property of a network. Yeah. I think it's just honestly a bit too early to make yep. those kinds of claims. I mean, what we know is that human consciousness depends in specific ways on the brain. Yeah. Some of these facts are really striking. The cerebellum, which is this mini brain and that hangs off the back of your cortex, that seems to have almost nothing to do with conscious experiences yet it has about three quarters of all the neurons in your brain. I always find that surprising. Wow. Three quarters of your brain cells have basically nothing to do with consciousness. The methodology <laughs> that people have been following for a long time is to look for the so-called neural correlates of consciousness. This right. is a very, again, pragmatic strategy. Mm. It just tries to identify relationships between things happening in the brain and the kinds of conscious experiences 
that people report having. And it's limited because we all know that correlations are neither causal nor are they necessarily explanatory. And there's all these, there's this fantastic website, I forget the name now, which has sort of weird correlations like between the price of cheese in Wisconsin <laughs> and the divorce rate in France in the 1960s, like correlate perfectly, something like that. Uh-huh. And of course, you know, there's no, the fact that there's this correlation tells us nothing about the real world. So the challenge in the neuroscience of consciousness is to identify not only brute correlations, but correlations that have predictive and explanatory power. We want to know why does this brain region or pattern of activity go along with this particular kind of conscious experience? I think that's Mm -hmm. the direction the field is moving in. I think that's a very productive way for it to develop. Historically speaking, the brain, not necessarily consciousness, but the brain has always been understood in relationship to human metaphors. So we used to talk about the cogs turning when we were thinking. Now we talk about the idea of processing ideas. I'm processing what you're saying, Anil. It's a it's a machinic metaphor. And we've got to this stage where the dominant way in which to understand the brain is like some form of computer. That three pounds of grey gloop inside of the skull, that's a computer and whatever consciousness is must be some form of software program running on that computer. Uh, Does that sort of metaphor, does that limit our understanding for the possibility for what both the brain and consciousness could really be? Yes, I think it does. We can't escape the use of metaphors. There's a, yeah. a lovely book by Matthew Cobb called The Idea of the Brain, which gives right. a beautiful history of the metaphors that people have used to try to understand this incredibly complicated and recalcitrant lump of tofu-like stuff inside <laughs> our skulls. Yeah. The metaphor of the brain as a computer has been fairly dominant for the certainly the latter half of the 20th century and into the 21st. But I do feel that it's on the way out. And it's been on the way out in some, some communities and some philosophical perspectives for a very long time. There are ways in which the brain is very unlike a computer, at least of the sort of computers that we have surrounding us now, we talked about memory earlier. I mean, one reason you can't find the part of my brain that has the memory of what I had for breakfast is that biological memory is not like a computer memory. It's not like a file system where the point is if you save a file and then you load it back up again, it's the same file. Yeah. Memory for, for humans, the more often we remember something, the less accurate it becomes. Memory is always an act of recreation, of regeneration. Mm. But there are just endless differences between what computers do and what brains do. And some of these get very fundamental. And here's where the metaphor can start to be limiting. I think the main reason it can be limiting is with this easy thing to say that you hear all the time, that the brain is, of course, it's processing information. The brain is an information processing device of some sort. This is said very freely as if it's entirely obvious. And computers are also information processing devices. That much is true. Mm. That's what they were built to do. That's how to understand them. Is the brain an information processing system? That's actually smuggling a lot of strong assumptions in (laughs) about what brains do. Like, What is information? What is processing? When people talk about information processing, they usually also imply that you can 
in principle build a computer, an actual information processing system, out of anything. Now, we build them out of silicon now because it, it works. It's kind of cheap and we know how to do it. But the principles of computation apply to anything. You could build a computer out of tin cans and bits of string if you took enough time. Hmm. And of course, Babbage built his computer out of cogs. Now, the human brain is made of neurons and it's made of synapses and it's this chemical machine as much as an electrical machine. And so it's a very open question, I think, whether consciousness depends on the stuff that brains are made out of or whether it's substrate independent in the way that the information processing metaphor encourages us to assume. Mm. It's just not clear to me that consciousness is either one or the other. My intuition is that it, it actually does depend on the stuff because in the brain, unlike in a laptop computer, there is no sharp distinction in the brain between what we might call the mindware and the wetware. Mm. A very fundamental principle of most computers, this is, can be blurred too, is that the hardware is what it is and then you can run different software programs on it and that determines what the computer does, how it processes information. Now in the brain, there's just not that clear separation. Yep. Neurons fire. Every time a neuron fires, the network changes a bit. Neurons themselves are incredibly complicated little biological machines and they're made out of other things within neurons that are also very complicated. So where do you draw the line? It's not clear there's a good reason to draw the line anywhere in particular. Now, what metaphor do we, do we move on to? Because the computer metaphor has done a lot of great work too. Now, it allowed us to think, most importantly, about the reality of internal operations. The brain is not just a stimulus response device where there's a pre-canned response to every input. A lot of interesting dynamics happen in the middle. Yeah. And it's really unclear whether we should think of it in terms of input stuff happening output at all. It's a very coupled, embodied, embedded system. But the computer metaphor at least moved psychology and neuroscience to the stage where we'd think about internal dynamics as very, very relevant. Mm. But what's next? Well, <laughs> the more we now think about cognition, perception, brain function as a property of networks and interactions between different brain regions. I think metaphors like the internet, mm. like cloud computing, edge computing actually might be quite useful because they allow us to think about how functions can be realized by distributed networks rather than by very localizable processing elements. That word functions, I mean, that, that reminds me of another ism, functionism, which informs a lot of this understanding for how we can see the brain metaphorically. And, and by hearing you say that, I know you're going to upset maybe 50% of our audience who are hoping that they can have substrate independent minds, that in other words, that they can upload their mind. I mean, what is your thought on Nick Bostrom's idea of mind uploading or substrate independent consciousness and minds that can live in some form of server rack somewhere or in silicon? Right. These things go together, don't they? I mean, there's, there's a whole collection <laughs> of ideas so. <laughs> that leads, that all hang together in a way that a lot of people do find appealing. If you think yeah. of the brain as a computer, this underwrites this view of functionalism that you just mentioned. And functionalism is sort of a subset of physicalism. It says that yeah. consciousness is a property of physical systems, but really it's property of the functions implemented by physical systems yeah. uh, in a substrate independent way. That's 
what functionalism says in in philosophy of mind that it doesn't matter what the brain is made out of it matters what it does how it transforms inputs into outputs so if you buy really strongly into the computer metaphor then you can buy into functionalism and then you can even buy into this idea that well if i get the software the mindware right then i can upload my conscious experience into the cloud and live forever in some digital immortality and what's interesting to me is that these ideas also get bound up with things like the singularity this idea that yeah. we're right at this point in time this exponential tipping point where artificial intelligence computational technology is just going to get us towards general ai and then artificial consciousness might happen as well because there's this other assumption that consciousness is to do with intelligence which I think is wrong too. I think it's much more to do with being alive than being smart. And at that point, we will, yeah, we'll be able to upload ourselves. I'm very, very sceptical of all this. I think this will not come as a surprise. It's not that I think it's in principle impossible or wrong. I just think there's no good reason to think that it is possible. And there's certainly no good reason to think it's just around the corner. You know, in some sense, if I transplanted or reproduced every molecule of your brain somewhere else, well, then I'd reproduce your consciousness too. That's just a statement, again, at least my belief in materialism, that <laughs> mm. consciousness is fundamentally a property of what there is in the universe organized in a particular way. But if I scanned your brain in enormous detail and then uploaded its structure to a very fast computer and ran it as a simulation, would there be a conscious Luke inside that server rack? Mm. I don't know. It depends on so many assumptions about what's necessary for consciousness, that it is substrate independent, that it is purely a matter of information processing. Mm. And I see no good reason to believe that that will definitely be the case. It may well just be that you've got a very, very good simulation of Luke's brain running on a computer, but there's nothing subjective, intrinsically conscious going on for that simulation. Yeah. It, it also relies on an assumption that all of those metaphorical things happen to also be true things. And the, the question is, we still don't necessarily know how to locate, as we said previously, a lot of these things that give rise to consciousness. And there is another burgeoning idea that what consciousness is or, or what our perception of consciousness is doesn't exist necessarily in the brain, but it could exist out there. And I know your friend David Eagleman has a wonderful uh, story, at least, or, or metaphor for this, which is similar to finding a FM radio. So say a prehistoric man finds an FM radio on the floor and they pick the FM radio up and they turn it over and they take off the back panel and mess with the wires inside of the radio. They understand that, oh, by messing with the wires, the voices coming from the radio change. And if I turn the dials, the voices also change. So I assume that whatever I'm doing physically to this FM radio, this object, is causing that change. And at no point would they assume that in actual fact, the voices are being transmitted by radio waves that are being received by the radio. So what's your relationship, I guess, with, with some of these other ideas that perhaps it's not, um, or consciousness isn't something that comes from the physical human brain, but is actually transmitted and received by the human 
brain, that the brain is not so much a computer, but in actual fact, the brain is some form of antenna. And what we're going to be looking at as our new metaphor isn't uh, machinic, but has more relationship to quantum, some form of entanglement with something out there that we don't fully understand yet. And I know we're touching on some you know, problematic uh, issues here, but I just wondered your initial response to that sort of uh, burgeoning idea. I think two responses. The first is metaphors are useful in terms of their explanatory power. Yeah. How they help us understand a system. That's why the computational metaphor has been historically quite useful up to a point. Mm-hmm. There's metaphor of the brain as a as a sort of antenna that's receiving consciousness from something that is some broader field of consciousness that's out there doesn't for me explain very much. <laughs> it doesn't add a lot to making sense of the relations that we can see between brains and and consciousness. Mm. And the other thing, initial reaction is, this is why from the more standard perspective of, of, yeah, it's the brain that's that's important. The brain is not a generator. The brain is where the action is, Mm. is the importance of going from correlation to explanation. Yeah. The people who are really puzzled about the FM radio and they start pulling it apart and if they make, if they reach the conclusion that the voices are in the radio, it's because they haven't developed a very good explanation for how radios work. Mm-hmm. They clearly don't understand what the bits and pieces in radios are actually doing. And even in neuroscience, there, there is a an interesting and difficult issue about which parts of the brain are involved in consciousness purely as like enabling functions, what you might call mm. sophisticated on-off switches. Broadly, you need to, your heart needs to be beating in order to have conscious experiences <laughs> over you know, for a bit more time, or your brain needs to have oxygen, but that doesn't mean that's where the consciousness is happening, right? Yeah. There are parts of the brain, such as deep in the brain stem, that if you have damage, you will lose consciousness forever. Yeah. But does that mean that your consciousness is located, or the generating mechanisms are located down in the brain stem? Maybe not. It just means, well, that part of the brain is necessary for the rest of the brain to enter the states of activity that are Mm. generating or identical to conscious experiences. So we need to go from correlation to explanation. And I think that will tell us which metaphors are the most useful. Yeah. The title of your book is, is Being You. And that's really about an exploration of you or me and and what our consciousness, our self-experience of consciousness is. But you mentioned the word relational there. Could conscious experience actually be relational, i.e. between people? Should the title of the book be less being you and more being us? Is the only reason I can understand and acknowledge that I have a form of self-consciousness is that I am able to recognize consciousness within you in the same way that when we anthropomorphize animals, we can recognize something that looks like consciousness in an animal. We, we have a relational experience with them. My ability to at least have the empathy to understand you as a conscious being means that that gives me the confidence that I am also a conscious being. And there's almost a feedback loop between you and I right now that is giving rise to our understanding of self-consciousness. There's a lot there. I think in some ways I agree with that, but maybe Mm. not in all ways. So certainly for our normal experience of being a human 
being, mm-hmm. that is partly dependent, I would think, on our social experience, our social interactions. So I experience myself as a distinct individual with my memories and my actions, partly because my brain has the ability to infer your mental states, mm. your actions, what might be in your mind. So in, in that sense, that aspect of what it is to be me is refracted through the perceived minds of others. And it may even be that without that social dimension to human consciousness, it may have never arisen as a question for us as humans, like, why am I conscious? Who am I? To even ask those questions may require this kind of social immersion, this kind of social context. Yeah. But there are two th- two ways in which I think this idea can be overextended. One is to say that there's a expression of consciousness that is somehow collective, that is somehow supervening over many individuals at the same time, in the same way that my conscious experience is dependent upon, is unified, back to our early conversation, I think it's unified, based on the activity of many neurons, could there be a group consciousness? Is there some conscious entity now that's somehow the sum of you and I both together? I think probably not, though both your consciousness and mine are now affecting very substantially. And the second way I think the idea can be overextended is that it may not go all the way down. Yeah. So there's certain aspects of our conscious selves that I think are dependent on this social context, but not all of them. It seems to me that the experience of, let's say, pain or fear may not depend on us having evolved or developed in a social context. There might Mm. be some experiences that we can have, whether they're of the self or of the world, that do not require a social component. Yeah, I was just thinking about when you experience pain, how that feeling of pain can sometimes be projected back onto me and you, you cringe when you see someone hurt or you uh, you have a visceral response to the hurt of another person. Yeah, it can be. So th- this is also true that the fact that something, if it's true that I can experience pain or there can be an experience of pain without a social component, it can also be the case, and I think it is the case, that experiences of pain when they happen can still be affected by social interaction. Indeed, they are. There's this, there is this phenomenon, I think you just described it, called vicarious pain. Yeah. If you show people videos of somebody accidentally smashing their thumb with a hammer when they're trying to hammer a nail into a piece of wood, even describing it, you know, some people will just feel something like pain. Yeah. And this varies quite a lot across individuals. But it certainly seems that we can, in some circumstances, to some extent, feel the pain of others. My contention is only that we may also be able to feel pain or organisms, non-social organisms, will also likely be able to have experiences of pain. Yeah, the reason I'm asking those questions is because I'm slowly but surely bringing us to this idea that will we ever be able to acknowledge consciousness in certain forms of non-human entities and less animals, because certainly we've updated our understanding of what animal consciousness is, but more to do with robots. Will we ever understand that there is 
consciousness that has the possibility to emerge from complex systems of data. And I know you look quite heavily in the, the last chapters of your book at what a robotic consciousness may or may not look like to us. So what is your understanding of how we should see artificial intelligence through the lens of something like human consciousness? I think there's a lot of dangers in this area yeah, and a lot of biases that we humans bring to the table yeah. in what we think is important for consciousness, for ethics and for so on. The first bias is that consciousness is a function of intelligence. Yeah. You see this quite a lot in the artificial intelligence community that this assumption that once AI reaches a threshold, the lights come on and you have a sentient system as well as an intelligent system. That emergence piece again, if we just have enough silicon, yeah. it ping consciousness again. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Why do we think that? It's, I think there's, a, there's definitely a, a residue of this anthropocentrism where we think we're smart, we're intelligent and we're conscious. So the two have to go together. I think this is very dangerous on both sides. Firstly, there's no reason to believe that simply making something smarter will just make it conscious. Yeah. So we may overestimate artificial consciousness that way. And then we may underestimate it in other living systems that don't seem to be that smart by our questionable human standards of smartness. Another, I think, for me, very important issue is that we don't know what it would take to build a conscious robot or a conscious machine. There's just no consensus on what the minimally sufficient conditions would be. It really does depend on where you stand on a lot of these irresolvable, currently metaphysical debates about substrate independence, about functionalism. Anyone, I think, who claims to be really confident about the answer to those questions is is just being a little bit overconfident. <laughs> and since we don't know what it would take, we also don't know what it would not take. My view, is, as we've been talking about, is I do think the substrate matters. I, I think my intuition is that being conscious depends in some way on the stuff we're made out of because we can't have this sharp distinction between the mindware and the wetware. But I might be wrong about that. Maybe you can build a conscious machine out of silicon. And so I would worry that we might build a conscious machine by accident. We don't know what it w wouldn't take, so it might just happen despite uh, the currently dominant philosophical view. And that would be an absolute ethical catastrophe because we'd have built things capable of having experiences. And those experiences might be very aversive experiences. They might be negative experiences. And furthermore, they might be negative experiences that we human observers cannot even recognize. When we look at another animal, if it's sufficiently close to us on the tree of evolution, we can usually detect, though we sometimes we choose to ignore, whether it's a positive or negative experience going on for that animal. But if we've just got you know, a robot or a whirring box on a table, we have no in intuitive guidelines for, for understanding what kind of experience might be going on. And to then be building these machines for whatever purpose is just extremely unethical thing to do. It's a very undesirable situation to be in. So I've yet to hear a good reason for attempting to build a conscious machine. I really don't think we should be doing it. I mean, you just hear, mm. oh, wouldn't it be cool to build a conscious machine? No, 
building things because they're cool is a really generally very bad reason for doing anything. And we may also slip up on the other side that we build robots that give us the strong impression of being conscious, but which may just not be at all. I mean, these are sort of anthropomorphic robots, Hmm. anthropomimetic robots that really give the strong impression they're conscious, but we just know they aren't. And that's going to equally distort our moral and ethical perspectives because we find it, you know, our human instinct is very much driven by the appearance of something that that's similar. So the TV series Westworld deals with this in a very dark way that you have these artificial machines, creatures that the guests to this park are told not to worry about because they're just machines. But of course, you're still engaging with something that gives the appearance of having experiences. And of course, I want to, if people haven't seen Westworld, it becomes, it's a very interesting aspect of it, whether they do or not. And Ex Machina, again, a very similar plot line going on through that film. But I think that, yeah, the dangers are in all these different directions about, we don't know what it wouldn't take to build a conscious machine. It's certainly not just a function of intelligence and we'll end up in complicated situations where we in human society are finding it increasingly difficult to distinguish the artificial from the real. Despite that, there's something very comforting in what you're saying there, because these sorts of artificial intelligence that we commonly understand, server racks, computers, algorithms, data, information, that might not give rise to something that's like consciousness, but artificial life, lab-grown biological robots or entities, maybe that's the thing that will have some emergent property that has similarity to what we commonly understand as consciousness. I think that's much more likely. I mean, mm. almost a priori it has to be more likely, right? Because yep. when you have a neurotechnology, like we have brain organoids now that are emerging technologies, yep. they're at the moment quite simple, but they are made out of the same stuff. So there's one big difference that you already don't have to worry about, or rather actually gives us something else to worry about because I am, I'm in the short term more concerned about brain organoids developing some primitive level of awareness yeah. than I am about some complex AI in a server rack developing artificial intelligence. Organoids are made out of neurons and they are developing rapidly. Now, this is a, it's an interesting technology, but again, I don't think we should be that gung-ho about just developing more and more human-like, more and more complex organoids even if there are some good medical reasons for doing. I think we just need to be mindful of, have we crossed the line or are we approaching? We want to think about these things preemptively. Are we approaching a line where we might seriously have to be concerned about whether these neurotechnologies, synthetic life forms, synthetic neural systems, have enough similarity to those systems that are related to consciousness in humans that we should worry? I was at a a panel of the US National Academies last year of science, engineering, medicine, who were trying to develop some regulation ethics frameworks Mm -hmm. for research onto organoids. And the conclusion was that in their current state, there's nothing to worry about. Organoids that are being developed at the moment are very simple clusters of cells and so on. I think that might be right, but I don't think, I think it's worth revisiting that 
really quite frequently given the rapid development of this kind of technology. The last time I've heard people dismiss certain things because they're just assemblages of cells is the burgeoning and the ongoing debate, especially in the US around zygotic personhood, you know, when does life begin? And it's currently the debate is moving towards how much cellular material has formed as a fetus and at what point is that cutoff point. And you're right, organoids, I mean, in some cases, there's more cellular material there than zygotes that can be aborted at certain stages of the birth process. Uh, But if organoids did develop consciousness, I mean, wouldn't that teach us so much. I mean, isn't that kind of the hope in a weird sort of way? If this amalgam of cells was able to, or we were able to understand its expression of its, I guess, self, whatever sort of self that would be, wouldn't that teach us and teach you as a scientist so much about consciousness? I think potentially, yes. There's a massive problem here though, which is that how would we know? Yeah. Why does it matter? (laughs) Well, it certainly matters because when we're just in this state of almost guaranteed epistemic uncertainty of of not knowing, I think we should Uh err on the the side of caution with respect to all this. Mm. Because as soon as something is a subject that is having conscious experiences, then we have an ethical responsibility to it as well. And that changes the game. I mean, we neuroscientists for decades since the beginning have been doing experiments on animals, other conscious subjects, and a lot of, I think, really important debate about whether this should be done or the limits, the restrictions, the conditions under which it's justifiable, the conditions under which it's not justifiable. Mm. But of course, we can learn a lot from non-human animal experiments. The same would be true of organoids, but with this big proviso that there's such a, because they, they're just bundles of cells, maybe when they're equipped with sensations and possibilities for action, but there's just going to be intrinsically a great deal more uncertainty about the conscious state of an organoid than there is for another organism. The interesting thing about trying to scientifically understand consciousness is there's a multitude of ways to do so. And it's not necessarily just by studying uh, human individuals as they are now. Sometimes it's by looking at individuals who are either on drugs like psychedelics or who are in a vegetative state. So what can we learn about consciousness from individuals in these very unique positions? I think there's a lot to be learned in these conditions compared to something like organoids or artificial intelligences now. And the two examples that you picked are particularly relevant, I think, for understanding of consciousness. To deal with a vegetative state first. So this is a condition, it's a very unfortunate, difficult condition that can happen after severe brain damage, either through a blow to the head or through loss of oxygen to the brain. And it results in a, it defines a condition where people in the vegetative state, they still go through sleep and wake cycles. They still wake up Mm. and they go to sleep again, but there just doesn't seem to be anybody there. There seems to be no consciousness going on. This is usually defined from the outside by neurologists. They'll see whether people respond to commands, make any kind of voluntary movements or actions. And when these things are, are missing, then a condition of vegetative state is diagnosed. Mm. And there are two reasons this is very, very relevant. One is that 
in terms of medical practice, it's of course critical to diagnose this condition accurately. You wouldn't want to miss people who are having conscious experiences, but a diagnosed as not having them because they can't express themselves outwardly through behavior. And this is a domain where consciousness science has made already a massive contribution to medical practice. Because by looking inside the brain with different kinds of brain imaging methods, we can detect individual cases where consciousness may remain, so-called cases of residual consciousness, that are just not apparent when looking from the outside. So this is already changing clinical medical practice. Mm. And then in terms of understanding consciousness, what you have in the vegetative state is a separation of what we would call physiological arousal from conscious status. So normally when we wake up, we are conscious. The two kind of go together. When we're asleep, interestingly, of course, we can be both unconscious and conscious when we're having dreams. But normally when we're awake, we are conscious, apart from in this condition of the vegetative state. So it gives us an opportunity to figure out what are the brain mechanisms, bodily mechanisms that are involved specifically in being awake compared to being aware. And then in the other case of, of psychedelics, these are two examples among many other the manipulations of consciousness that, that are very informative. Psychedelics, of course, is, uh, has spent a long time in the wilderness as a legitimate scientific research area or area of clinical practice too. And there's recently been a lot of excitement about the psychedelic space, about its potential for treating psychiatric or mental illness problems such as post-traumatic stress disorder, depression, and so on. But as with the vegetative state, there's also a way of using psychedelics as a tool for understanding consciousness. Briefly, you, you give somebody a small pharmacological nudge, you know, all psychedelics, all the classic psychedelics work through a common pathway on the so-called serotonin 2A receptor system. You change how that behaves and you radically change people's conscious experiences. And this is informative in very many ways. Firstly, it shows that the normal way in which we have our experiences of the world and the self is not the only way. Mm. You know, there are experiences of ego dissolution where people's experience of selfhood becomes much more blended with the rest of their experiences. And sometimes people will report similar things in really focused states of meditation or sensory deprivation or so on. But psychedelics is a very reliable way to turn these experiences on and off. Mm. And then, of course, we can, we can look at, well, what's happening in the brain? that might explain these changes in conscious experience. And because it's something that is really quite controllable, you, know, you can give somebody a substance and then you can just track what happens. It's, it's a really powerful method, I think, for understanding the brain basis of consciousness. As we've been speaking throughout this entire conversation, the one thing that's incredibly clear to me is that consciousness is a real problem. And some people have called that a soft problem. Some people have called that a hard problem. But to you, Anil Seth, it is a real problem. So what do you mean by that? And why is that the framework through which you feel is the best way to understand consciousness ultimately? Uh, thank you for raising that term. This brings us back to where we started, I think, about 
what's the best way to understand consciousness? Also, what's just the best way to try and develop an understanding of consciousness? Yeah. This distinction between the hard problem of consciousness and it's the easy problem. Although I quite like what you said, the soft problems. I quite like that. The hard and soft <laughs> problems, that's another way to put it. But David Chalmers very influentially distinguished the hard problem, which is the problem of how and why any physical interactions should give rise to or be identical with any conscious experience whatsoever. And that's the problem in the face of which we might leap to these radical alternatives like panpsychism, idealism, mysterianism. The easy problems are all those problems about how brains do what they do for which you just don't have to mention consciousness. And they're not easy in the sense of being easy to solve, but they're conceptually easy in that there's no big mystery that a complex mechanism of some sort should be up to the job. Now, this is a very useful distinction, I think, in a lot of work on consciousness because it really isolates this sense of mystery about consciousness. But I think ultimately I found it not the most useful way for me to think about the problem. Consciousness exists. Conscious experiences are real and they depend in ways on the brain and body. And for me, the real problem is what we've been talking about throughout. It's the challenge, the problem of how to explain and predict and control the properties of consciousness, why experiences have the character that they do, why an emotion is the way it is, why an experience of redness is the way it is and not some other way, why experiences of free will are the way they are and not some other way in terms of things happening in brains and bodies. And the intuition is by addressing this, this real problem, and it's, it's really it's not a new idea either. This is what a lot of neuroscientists have been doing for a long time. It's a whole branch of work called neurophenomenology, which is very, very along the same lines, trying to build explanatory bridges between neural mechanisms and aspects of consciousness. Now, the more you do this, my hope is that this apparent mystery of the hard problem begins to fade away, begins to dissolve. The question is, will it dissolve entirely so that there is just no remaining sense of mystery that consciousness is indeed a property of physical systems, of particular kinds of physical systems? Or will there still remain this residue of mystery, this hard problem piece that we can't quite get rid of? And if that is the case, then why is that? Is that because there indeed is some big metaphysical gap between consciousness and the rest of the world? Or is it because we somehow expect more of an explanation of consciousness than we expect from science in other domains. So I'm interested to see how this, this plays out. But the exciting thing for me is the view is changing. You know, I've been in this game for 25 years now and the way I think about consciousness and I think the way the field, my colleagues and inspirations and mentors and students think about consciousness is changing. And where we'll be in another 20 years, you know, I really don't think we'll have had this eureka moment where suddenly it's like, oh yeah, I've discovered the structure of consciousness and here it is. It's like they've discovered the answer. But I do think we will see the problem in a different way. And even if some residue of the hard problem remains, we will have understood so much more about how and why we experience the world and the self the way that we do, and we'll have had the opportunity to develop 
new technologies, new interventions in neurology and psychiatry. You know, the side benefits, if you like, of the real problem approach are just enormous. Mm. And so I think it's it's a good place to be. There's a lot of excitement. We're not trying to prematurely come up with a grand answer just to get rid of this uncomfortable sense of mystery. Live with a sense of mystery. It's fine. It's all right. <laughs> well, well, and also, Seth, on that incredibly hopeful and, uh, I guess, mysterious note, I just want to thank you for being a guest on the Futures Podcast. Oh, well, thank you, Luke. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. Thank you to Anil for sharing his thoughts on the range of philosophical debates related to our understanding of human consciousness. You can find out more by purchasing his new book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness, available now. If you like what you've heard, then you can subscribe for our latest episode. Or follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Futures Podcast. More episodes, transcripts, and show notes can be found at futurespodcast.net. Thank you for listening to the Futures Podcast.